think so. I, I, I absolutely think that's the case. And it's interesting because I, I think about glaucoma and you know, with, gla with glaucoma, for example, it's about 2.7 million people in the country right now have, have glaucoma. The estimates in 2019 are 14 million people currently have macular degeneration, 14 million. And we have a disease in glaucoma that takes, it rarely takes central vision, right? It has to be pretty aggressive and pretty severe to take central vision. But typically, worst case scenario, we have these nasal steps, you know, and patients in one eye have a really bad field versus a disease that we take that steals central vision. Why are we not taking that very seriously, right? Welcome to the iCode Media Podcast, where we help you become the best eye care provider you can be. I'm your host for today, Ted McElroy. Today, we turn the tables just a little bit on Chris, our usual host, Chris Wolf. He'll be answering all the questions that I pose to him as opposed to the other way around. We had a great time to discuss some things over the last weekend where we were at a meeting together in Houston, and we discussed a lot about where he sees the profession going in the future, also where AMD research and other treatments are going. I've always known Chris to be one of the most encouraging people in our profession, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button and please, please give us a review and a rating on your particular podcast player. And as always, please help support those who support us. Probably for what? Ten, nine months, ten months. Doing podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Since January, and you know, I've, I've kind of had this idea to do it for a while. You know, we um, I talked about my buddy Drew Bateman. He and I have, have talked about doing a podcast for a long time, probably a few years actually. And um, and you know, it's like one of those things in life you sort of let it go until you either have enough um, desire to do it or enough time to do it, or you think it's important enough to do. And, um, and so I think what the, what the impetus for me to start doing it was finally was that, um, you know, from a vision source standpoint, we have these, um, we have these touch points with, with people where we gain a lot of information and I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of, um, through my travels with state government relations committee and then with vision source, I've always been able to kind of have conversations with people I find really interesting. And it's always been hard for me to translate that back um, to other doctors about what's really going on around around um, the country in optometry and outside of you know outside of optometry within Vision Source outside of Vision Source. And so um, so in order to try to be effective at that communication, what I found was maybe it's best if I can just let people listen to some of those conversations I've been able to have. And so. Um, so that's what's been fun about it. And I, I think has been valuable to people as they sort of get um, a sense of what's going on in these different places without having to be right there um, and knowing exactly what questions to ask or even, you know, you can kind of get some background and then, you know, having the right conversations. Right. So when you first got the concept of doing this, well, you know, you had this idea of what you had. So does this, how you thought it would all turn out? <laughs> You know, I um I, I didn't have any idea. I knew I knew that Gary Gerber had, had had done a podcast for years, and um the um 
but I had never listened to it. And, and I actually purposefully, so I, I didn't want to listen to other optometry podcasts and I still don't because I don't, I want it to be my own. I want, I want what, not because I don't like what these other guys are doing. There's, there's other guys that are doing them, um, that, uh, I, I, I respect a lot the, but I don't want to sound like them. Right. And so, um, so basically I, I just want to have conversations. It's just like if you and I, Ted, were sitting down having a conversation over a beer of, what are we excited about? What are we thinking about? And um, I think that is interesting. So did it did it look like in my mind like this? It actually has evolved a lot. You know, so I started doing it all on um, remotely. So I, I was just sitting in my office um, at my home and I, you know, had to schedule these phone calls that after my kids had gone to bed. Right. And, um, and I, I, I like that. It's It's convenient, but there's something... I didn't think that I would be so quick to move to having these face-to-face conversations where we actually are in a studio sure. and microphones and headphones on. And that's been really fun. And, and I think the listeners um, kind of have these this evolution of what's cool is if you were listening over time, it's probably had this slow evolution. But um, but if you were listening now and then go back to kind of one of the first ones we did, it'd be pretty dramatic. And, um, and so I didn't think I'd be sitting in basically a, a studio having these conversations, but it's been fun. Yeah. I mean, obviously the evolution that you're going through with this is not just, you know, we, we talked about this as we were getting set up here a minute ago, you know, you've changed a little bit of your technology, you've added, you know, this particular app, you've done these kind of things, but do you find that the actual conversations that you're having are have changed since you started doing this as well and and how do you feel like it's changed i think i think um what i'm seeing is the conversations that i'm having tend to be um maybe i'm getting maybe the people i'm talking to are becoming more loose around it when i first started asking people to do it they were worried that they were going to say something wrong or say something that might get them in trouble with somebody else or that a patient might hear something or Whatever it is, right? And um, and throughout, so what I always try to do now is give people a sample of what what I do, and um, and I think throughout that I'm not trying to play gotcha. I'm not trying to get people to say stuff. So that I think has loosened up our conversations. The other thing that used to happen a lot was we'd have these conversations offline at the beginning or at the end, and I was always like, man, I that's I wish we had that conversation you know because because people are so loose when, when you stick a microphone in front of people and I, I'm the same way I think that's probably been an evolution of it as well is that um, you're not sure you're kind of measuring every word as you start doing this and then pretty soon um, you're still you're still kind of making sure that what you say is going to be effective and I'm not uh, communicating or rambling but um, but you loosen up to know that you're getting comfortable with with those conversations and i think that comfort has been what's really changed and so i think that then makes um people less apprehensive to worry about slipping up and saying something that they don't mean or feeling like i'm going to use this again you know it's not my goal and so i think once people understand that then we're having more candid conversations and what seems to be the case in all these conversations is that people are really um I think people are very optimistic about the profession, but I think they're also worried about the things they're seeing that they don't feel like they can control in the profession. So that's that's what I seem to be having these same conversations with people because that's what's really on their radar screen. So with that, 
how do you think that's changing the decisions that they're making on a daily basis right now? Because I mean, we, you know, I've talked about this in a number of different formats and it seems like it's the, that fear mentality that's driving a lot of people. How does, how is that changing some of their decisions? Well, I think, you know, um, like, so I had a conversation with Brad, um, Briego and I think if they're educated about it, if they really take the time to sit down and look at all their options, they are making better decisions. So either they're, they're becoming more informed and they're still going to make some of those decisions. And without being abstract, one of the, the things that, that always comes up and has time and time again, and you and I have discussed it before as well, is private equity. And, and so what does private equity actually mean? Um, and what is it going to mean to our practices? And I think a lot of times people um, are kind of in this scenario of they, they're just going to, they want to be done and they, they're just going to take what they can get. And, um, and it seems to me like the more educated people are in the process, whether they wind up selling to private equity or don't, the ones that are really educated, either if they walk away, they're walking away super informed and they're happy, or if they're taking the deal, they took a way better deal because they knew the stakes. They knew actually what right. was going on. It's the ones I think that, um, that are sort of in their own realm um, without a one-on-one -on -one communication with a person that they trust for a, a while that sort of get into this negative spiral. And, and I think, you know, Drew Bateman and I have had these conversations before about what is social media. And I'm not a social media expert. I'm not a generational expert. But when I think about um, why do I love to get in my practice and see patients every day, it's because I'm surrounded by other doctors that love to do it as well, that are passionate about the profession and what we can do to help people. And, um, and I've see very, I see some of that on social media, right? I see, a, I see bits and pieces of that on social media. But I also see a whole lot of uh, concern and negativity and um, pompousness that I, is not our profession. It's not the profession I know. And it's not the profession and it's not the people, actually. I think, you know, when we're when you're standing behind a wall of Internet, right, and you have no real you have an identity, but not uh, not this um, kind of tangible identity where you can explore ideas like this, then it seems it's like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to have something that's really witty and quick and then um, and then I'm done. Right. Right. Or I get a mic drop. Everybody's trying to mic drop sure. instead of like, let's explore an idea of, you know, what's the benefits of this and what's the drawbacks of this. And so I think if you're if you if you make sure you understand that realm, then I think you're going to be OK. But it's just you can get sucked into it. And I think that's that's one of the challenges of our culture as parents, as practitioners. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. But so I think it's tough to get that perspective of what's really important. And um, and where are those conversations going? And that's what I'm hoping that some of this gets into is because you get into a deeper conversation. Do you well? When you started this process 10, 10 months ago, how has your outlook changed? Not just the, the process, but the, the actual outlook of the profession ha or has it changed at all? Has it just made it stronger? Has it how is that? come about in the last nine to 10 months. Yeah. I, I, so one of the thoughts I had when, when I started doing this is um, I, what, what I think is really important is um, one of the reasons that I'm so excited about our profession is that I've been able to have really one-on-one -on -one encounters with people who have 
worked very hard so that I can practice the way I practice. And I say that all the time, and um, but, I, but I really mean it. And I think it's because I've had those conversations since I was in school and before I was in school to get the perspective of what has gone into all the fine, fine, minute details that allow for our scope of practice, allowed us to build to different payers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to tease that out is I've been able to have these conversations with people and meet people and just talk to them, pick their brains. And I, it's more reinforced now. The, the, the importance of sharing that message with people now is, is more amplified over the last 10 months. It's, uh, I'm, I'm more jazzed about the profession. There's all these people that are doing this awesome stuff and the fact that I'm, I'm kind of taking the time again to re-explore some of those ideas from people that I encountered years ago that made an impression on me. Um, and I still see that they, they have the same passion, they've evolved, they've changed. And uh, so way more, way, way more um, through these conversations it is amplified what I had already thought um, through the profession. So as you've gone through these conversations, you've thought about who you're going to talk to, who really surprised you when you decided, okay, I've got this question that I'm going to ask, and it went like way different than you were expecting it to go. That's, uh, you know, I, uh, so far, most of the people that I've had conversations with, um, I kind of had an idea what they, what they're, what they do, you know, right. what their realm is. So I wouldn't say that maybe I've I've been really surprised by answers. What I what has probably amazed me the most is that as I've talked to different people, I um, so many people are connected. Like like you, if if you go back far, what, what has always amazed me is like um, I I encountered Mike Rothschild mm -hmm. uh, years ago. Right. Well, then there's this tie-in with you know you and Amir and. Um, McCling, so all these guys like you can sort of evolve together in the same times of your practice, mm -hmm. and um, so that's been one of those things that's probably been the most surprising. Is I always know that the profession is small. Right. George Foster uh, was the dean um, of our uh, of Northeastern State University when I was there, and he always talked about um, this idea of the profession as being cousins. And I think that those are what's always been the most surprising thing to me is that the profession, while we can be so large and so anonymous, uh, especially in today's right. age, it, it isn't that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And that's what's been kind of the most, the thing that I knew, but I didn't really expect. Has anybody taught you something that you didn't really think about? After oh, going through totally. this conversation, so totally. so, give me a couple of nuggets. That I'll go back to <laughs> some crusty nuggets. Way back to some of my uh, colleagues in the uh, CEO summit stuff. Yeah, well, I think I think the things that I learned is that um, I mean, one one right away, uh, Mick Kling is always fascinating to talk to about from a from a business um, a business of optometry perspective. So to be specific, you know, every time I talk to to Mick, I get these ideas of. You know, how do you, and I still don't think I've wrapped my mind around it fully, but how do you make sure that you're being profitable um, and, and, and paying yourself first mm -hmm. and not trying to either grow out of your debt right. or, um, or save out of, your, or out of your profitability woes? Those are the things that, that kind of like, it, it, every time it just takes me a little bit more to, um, and I'm a Dave Ramsey guy. I'm right. a Dave Ramsey guy. And, and every time I talk to Mick, it's kind of like, okay, I'm a little bit closer and a little bit closer. So that's one. Um, 
you know, probably my favorite conversation I ever had. It wasn't actually an optometry conversation, but it was an HIV conversation with uh, yes. Dr. Padani. And, um, and so, like, some of the ideas that I didn't know were I really hadn't fully wrapped my mind around this idea that we can really now take HIV and, um, and make it a chronic disease at worst. And at best, we can completely prevent the transmission of the sure. disease. And so why that's, in, that's really impressive to me uh, is, and I shared this on that, that particular podcast, was that, um, and that is, I think that is not something that people think about right now. Even in, in general healthcare, it's not something that people are really thinking about, um, especially if you're not in infectious disease. Yeah. And, um, and so how does that translate to our practices? I mean, I don't know how it translates to our practices. I, I'll tell you that um, I've seen I, just in my awareness of the fact that, it, that that's the case, I, I now see, it seems like I see patients on Truvada um, on a regular basis. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a, the kind of the main prep medication. And again, why that's so fascinating to me is when I grew up, I, I thought I'm gonna get AIDS. Right, like, like I'm thinking I'm I'm a ten yeah. years old, ten year old kid, and I think I can get AIDS from from a toilet seat. Right, and and um, and I know that's not the case, and I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the you know you grow up with that uh, mentality, and so there was a couple things that's really fascinating about it is the fact that the disease in the '80s had to be a social disease that um, as Dr. Badani and I had had the conversation that uh, heterosexual males. And heterosexual females having heterosexual sex could get right. Otherwise, nobody cared about it. Right. And um, and and that's not right. But that that's exactly what happened. So what did they have to do for years is make it like anybody could get it right. Mm-hmm. And so even through what what was fascinating to me about that conversation, and I still reflect on it. And I'm going to have uh, Tony back on to talk about it more. Is this idea that even through optometry school. We learn about AIDS. We learn about the AIDS-defining diseases and cytomegalovirus and how that impacts the visual system. And, um, and, but I don't recall ever spending a lot of time on the fact that there's still these high-risk categories, high-risk behaviors that um, are populations that are at greater risk for, for contracting HIV and then developing AIDS. And so the fact that he and I were able to have that conversation, it, it was like, it's just kind of mind-blowing to me that like if you, I can't remember the numbers, but the num- that was one of the things that I was just like, I was just fascinated by that, that they had to make a disease that they didn't make the disease, right? I'm not a conspiracy, but, it, yeah. but, but they had to make that disease in order to conquer it. We had to make it a disease that anybody could get in order for people to care about it. And then once we cared about it, now we can conquer it. Well, then, I, then you know, how do you apply that to other things? You know, how do you apply that to, uh, how do you apply that, that, thought process to other things is just very interesting to me. Um, so anyway, th- those are the kind of the, the interesting things that I, I've picked up. I mean, this is kind of a weird question to put it in that way, but do you see that maybe, you know, with the way that we're looking at macular degeneration, hmm. that's kind of a change because, you know, we always have looked at this as an old people's disease, yeah. but now that we've got all this new technology that we can diagnose the challenges early on, you know, you get a 50 year old talking about how they can't see well at night anymore suddenly you've made this a young person's disease. Yeah. And do, do you think that's a similar, is, or is that too big of a stretch? 
No, I think I think it it is the case. I mean, you can look at you know my philosophy on dry eye as well as I actually think it's it's a biofilm. It starts out as a biofilm disease that starts very early in life, and the cumulative effect of that over the over time is actually what leads us to you know all the different multifactorial signs that we see that everybody thinks is just this big multifactorial disease is really just a different manifestation of those same underlying chronic inflammatory situations. And if you relate that to, um, to macular degeneration, I think it's the same thing. It's that we now know that disease starts well in advance before it causes symptoms. And if we wait for symptoms, which has classically been the case, specifically with macular degeneration and dry eye, then we are getting to that disease state so much later. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think I think there's two two things. One, patients are worried about it already. They've got a family history of macular degeneration. It is on their radar screen, so they want to know all the stuff that they can do. And two, as a profession, we tend not to. I think AREDS, while it has been a good thing, it has made um, it has made our profession feel like there's nothing else we can do. So, so as I as I talk to people about this in all of my teaching events, when I, wherever I speak, um, and I, I was going back because we've got the big um, we've got the big macular degeneration protocol that's kind of coming out um, to, for the admin meeting this weekend, and um, I was kind of recalling how many times I've I've spoken in front of audiences over the last eleven years, and I think it's over two hundred times. Right, and. In doing that, as I've had conversations about macular degeneration, I think there's there's a couple things that are striking to me. The first one that AREDS does is it forces doctors to say, is it dry or wet? That's really all they care about. And if it's dry, we're going to do AREDS too. If it's wet, they send, they send them to um, retinal specialists. But what's worse through the conversations I, I have with, with other docs is that even if it's very early, they just want a retina guide to bless it. So they'll oftentimes they'll set it to a retina and it, when it's category two and uh, and then it gets blessed by retina and oh by the way we're going to just see that patient forever right, right. out of our practices and so um, so uh, fast forward is first AREDS if you if you look at AREDS and if you're appropriately classifying AREDS and patients into one two three and four right if you're using that classification system. Um, most of us are not. What we're typically doing is we're saying, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, we're looking at the macula and saying, that looks bad. That looks good. Right? That's not as severe. That's more severe. And, that's, and so, so you're basically saying dry or wet. Yeah. Then you're saying if it's dry, severe, mild. Right? You're, you're, you're just basically getting kind of this sense, like this gut feeling on what you're thinking that macula looks like. But actually, if you, if you really delve into what those classification systems are. And then you know it's very easy. Okay, I know this classification system. That's what classification we are. This is what we're gonna do for those patients. And um, instead of feeling defeatist, like, well, we have a number needed to treat of one in 20 from AREDS. Well, there's some limitations of AREDS that people don't think about. Like one limitation is, why didn't they find a benefit in category one and two? Well, they didn't find a benefit probably because when they looked at the study, it was a 10-year study, right? AREDS 1, AREDS 2 are about 10-year studies. Right. Well, your risk of going from category 1, very fine drusen, smaller than 63 microns, your risk of going from there to intermediate drusen over the, over the course of 10 years is something like 0.5%. So 1 in 200 patients will have that, that, 
be the case. So if you're looking at a population over 10 years that has even very small drusen, it's unlikely over that 10 year period, one in 200 will have that conversion. So it's, it's hard for you to even have a statistical uh, validity in, in that particular population because the time that you're looking at is so small. So once you start realizing that, that macular degeneration is a disease state that doesn't progress from mild to severe over 10 years in most cases, it's a disease state that probably progresses from you know, 40s and 50s until those patients are you know, 95 or, or older, right? And so if you can think about that, that's when you start thinking if we can have impact way back here at the beginning of the disease, at the very earliest clinical signs, whether it's because of the dark uh, symptoms that that patient's having, or even if you're just waiting for the very first ophthalmoscopic signs, but you're looking really well, right? Mm -hmm. Then, um, then you should be able to capture those patients super early and have an impact where way down the line, they're not losing vision and they're not having to have injections every month. So what does that conversation sound like when you're talking to a 40 or 50 year old, you've just done a dark adaptation test on them and you say, here's the deal. Yeah, it, it is. It, my, my perspective has changed a lot. So first, um, it was a hard conversation to have. Now it's not because because actually we're catching these things so early that my my conversation is very optimistic. It's like, look, when when um, when your grandparents or when your parents found out they had macular degeneration, they were 75 years old. But our technology is so good now that we can catch it way earlier. And what that means is we can have interventions way earlier. So grandma or grandpa or mom or dad that that is blind and, and they're worried. Um, you don't have to worry about that. Don't lose sleep over it. You know, these are what the studies show us. Your risk is really low for progression in this five to 10 year window. But more importantly, we can start doing something now so that we're reducing your risk over time. And the other hard part, I think, Ted, about macular degeneration and what AREDS has done is, um, is everybody wants to have a randomized control trial to tell them what to do uh, with different supplementation. A silver bullet. Yes. They want to say, okay, I'm not going to do anything else outside of AREDS 1 or AREDS 2 until I have a big study to tell me that. Well, the cost of those studies, the amount of time it takes for those studies is so immense that by the time you're answering different questions, um, it is 10 years have gone by, right? So essentially from the, the conception of AREDS 1 to AREDS 2, let's say is a span of 20 years, if we get AREDS 3, that's a 30-year window for right. us to try to make some improvements. What about those patients in that 30-year window that we could have benefited? So what's better is, and, and we don't do this hardly with any other things, but what I think is, is better, and my, my, my thinking on this has really changed, is that instead of waiting for that really big study, you got to look at the evidence, right? But we can look at, at, at studies that have 100 people or 200 people that take bits and pieces of what we know about macular pigments and carotenoids and, um, and serum content of those carotenoids and cadaver, um, cadaver uh, AMD patients and their macular pigment levels. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we can take these bits and pieces of these smaller studies and say it's intuitive to think if we do this here, do I have a study that tells me we can get all the way there? I don't. But do I have four or five different studies that can kind of line that path? Absolutely. And, and so, um, so that's, that's, I think, what's encouraging. And that's what I can tell to my patients. I can say, look, we can do these things down here. 
that studies show us will bolster your macular pigment and they'll bolster your serum levels of carotenoids. And if we bolster those serum levels of carotenoids, the evidence tells us that your macular pigments are gonna be thicker. And we know patients who have thicker macular pigments or have less severe macular degeneration and less likelihood of progression of their macular degeneration. And it's that sort of confidence that I don't get from one randomized controlled trial, but we can get that through the evidence of, of big um, of big valid trials um, so or big valid studies. And I think that's important. And I think that's what we've got to do as optometry because ophthalmology is not going to do it. It's not a, it's not a disease they want to manage until so, it's an injection. So do you think really though that, well, and I guess this is the question is, you know, I think that the format you just laid out is sort of similar to the way I'm now treating my glaucoma patients. Yeah. I'm telling, Hey, I got some good news for you. We're catching you with early glaucoma. Yep. You know, this is because of this technology we've got now. We can look into it. We don't have to worry about the fact that you're going to go blind like your mom did. Yep. We can catch it now. This is a great thing. I know it sounds scary, but it's simple. We're going to take care of this. And you sort of feel like that's basically the same kind of story with the macro degeneration. Totally think so. I, I, I absolutely think that's the case. And it's interesting because I, I think about glaucoma. And you know, with, with glaucoma, for example, it's about 2.7 million people in the country right now have have glaucoma. The estimates in 2019 are 14 million people currently have macular degeneration. 14 million. And we have a disease in glaucoma that takes, it rarely takes central vision, right? It has right. to be pretty aggressive and pretty severe to take central vision. But typically, worst case scenario, we have these nasal steps, you know, and patients in one eye have a really bad field versus a disease that we take that steals central vision. Why are we not taking that very seriously, right? Like, like we have a disease, is it because we don't have prescription medications that, that treat it besides the injectables? Is it because we think we can't do anything else to really slow it down? Is it because, I mean, I'm not sure what that is. I, I, think, I think it's probably all of those things. I think it's that we've sort of been um, lulled into this sense of there's not a lot we can do. Maybe we can slow it down a little bit, but it's not going to be that effective. Right. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to be a salesman. I don't want to tell people to take something and it may not help them. And you know, one of the, the things that I think about is um, I was really lulled with this idea of number needed to treat within um, AREDS two. So if you look at the cohort of AREDS one and AREDS two, what it essentially found was in those patients in category three and four you could reduce their risk, their absolute risk by 5%. So that means is, yes, you're reducing their risk of progression to advanced disease, to vision loss, essentially. You're reducing their risk um, by, a, by 25%, but your absolute risk, meaning that you reduce them from a risk of 25% down to 20%, that absolute risk was a difference of 5%. If you take the inversion of that, that's, um, that's one over 5%, and you get a number needed to treat. That tells you how powerful that treatment is at, at reducing a risk of a patient for having vision loss over a period of time. And so why that's important is it can be, um, it can be kind of uh, maybe discouraging to a clinician to say, I'm gonna treat 20, even if, if I'm just looking at AREDS 1 and AREDS 2, right? I'm gonna treat 20 people to help one develop vision loss over time. And then you can feel like, man, that is, kind of defeating. But do you know the number needed to treat for a statin? So statins are one of the most commonly 
uh, prescribed medications to reduce cholesterol. Right. And the whole idea in reducing cholesterol is not for the sake of just reducing cholesterol. It's reducing risk of cardiovascular plaques. Or, yeah, exactly. So to prevent one uh, major event, like a heart attack or a stroke, do you know how many patients have to be uh, treated in order to prevent one? No. 300. Wow. So number needed to treat for a statin is 1 in 300. Versus 1 in 20. Versus 1 in 20. And further, okay, so further, what's interesting is, um, so you're getting a preview of the entire uh, right. protocol, but what is interesting is that, do you know how many people will be harmed by that statin out of that 300? I'm going to guess somewhere around 50 plus. Yeah, so so not quite that high, but it's 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 15 in 300. Okay. It's basically Still 5 in 100, right? Yeah. And it's not, and, and that's actually significant harm. That's like really bad muscle pain, joint pain. Mm -hmm. um, so, so then what you look at is not just the number needed to treat, but how many patients are am I going to treat, and how many patients am I going to harm? And so you're actually 15 times more likely to be harmed by a statin than to be benefited by a statin. Now, granted, it, it's a it's a serious disease that you're trying to prevent, right? Of I, I don't want to have a heart attack. I don't want to have a stroke. But um, but the bottom line is that you're way more likely to have harm from that. So then you start thinking, okay, well, what about AREDs? Well, AREDs, one, they use a really high amount of zinc. And you could also argue if you look at like prostate cancer and vitamin E levels that um, some of the high vitamin E levels we may not want to give everybody. Mm -hmm. But um, but in AREDs, two, they reduce zinc to 25 milligrams. And so even if we were going to use 80 milligrams of AREDs, one, AREDs one zinc, which we're not using anymore, right. even if we're going to do that, our likelihood of harming, and essentially that's a hospitalization from a UTI, is 1 in 28. So we're still more likely to help those patients on AREDs 1 with 80 milligrams of zinc than harm them. And now when you look at the studies on 25 milligrams of zinc that, that's in AREDs 2, um, I can't find any studies that, that show increased rates of hospitalization for that. Now, I would say the reason that it's good to be nuanced with Category 1, Category 2 and to not have to use high doses of vitamin E if you, if you um, can avoid it would be because there is a potential for other, um, other things like potentially prostate issues right. uh, from those higher doses. So bottom line is we can be confident that at these levels that we're using are, um, are not going to be harming the patients that we have. The only harm that, that you could say could come from it is the cost of the patient. Right? How much? How much are they going to have to take over how many years? Well, that's not even that significant anymore, right? Because because the cost to a patient is, you know, you can take some of these supplements for under thirty bucks a month, right? Right, and that's that's way less than what they're spending on Starbucks or whatever. Yeah. And the, you know, then you start doing the math on, okay, so if I if I have a patient, I can prevent one patient from having an injection or even delay that over time, right? So if we can delay, and this is based on AREDS data. If we can delay in today's numbers um, just two years of injections, so so I'm not even saying prevent them all together. I'm just saying delay them by two years. It can save the the healthcare system almost half a billion dollars over that two year period just by delaying injections for two years, meaning that they haven't progressed to wet. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just using AREDS data. Right. So I think those are the kind of things that are really interesting to me. And and how many? So how much supplements does that make? I mean. Um, so if, if it's the case that it's $30 a month for one patient and you have a number needed to treat of, I'm just going to kind of spitball the math, but, um, so 30 bucks a month, 12 months a year. So that's $360 a year. 
And if I'm treating 20 patients to prevent one, so that's so that over one year, that's 360 times 20 is um, what six thousand and seven six thousand four hundred dollars. Yeah, right. About that. Not yeah. So let's just say head. let's say Don't seven thousand dollars. Right. So seven thousand dollars <laughs> we treated those patients. Right? right. In in one year, in the first year, the average for one of those patients, one injection. Um, uh, you know, of Lucentis that you're getting every single month, if you can prevent one of those patients from developing that, mm-hmm. right, then you're, you basically have saved the entire system on two or three injections, right? So you prevent that one person over the course of treating those 20 patients for that year. You've, you've basically saved that system um, one or two months of treatment, right? So that's, I mean, that's immense. That's a huge cost benefit. Certainly. So, um, so I think those are the kind of things we need to be thinking about as a profession is what's our value proposition as a profession to the patients and, and patients want it. Patients want to know what they can do, uh, because they, they, they don't want to go blind. Right. So, um, yeah, so I I do think that, that, um, it is not necessarily changing the patient's perception of how you're going to have that conversation It's changing the doctor's perception that they can do something that's meaningful, that is effective. So. I want to sort of turn the discussion just a little bit. You know, one of the things is that you've gotten really involved early on in your career. Well, I'll say early on, you know, you're <laughs> starting to age now and uh, of course, but I'm losing uh, hair. Yeah, a little bit, but that's okay. But when you're, you're going through this process, who have been the leaders that have you really looked up to as being a model? That's who I'd like to be when I grow up. Um, and, and what kind of lessons have they taught you? Well, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, my, my dad has been my greatest mentor. I hope someday that I can be even just a fraction as good of a mentor as he's been to me to somebody else. I, I, I think um, he's a much better uh, grower and builder of people than, than I am. He, he, um, so, so he's, I mean, obviously above and beyond, there's nobody else that, that comes close. But um, for a number of reasons. The other guys, uh, Bob Vandervoort in Nebraska, um, David Cockrell in, in Oklahoma has been able to really take me under his wings and, and kind of show me um, the ropes and kind of teach me in a loving way, like when I kind of corral me from a state government relations standpoint and, and sort of kick me in the pants when I need to be kicked in the pants. He, he doesn't, um, and Bob's, Bob's the same way. You know, he hasn't, um, he hasn't, they, they don't let me just get away with stuff, right. right? They keep me in line. They keep me moving forward. They keep me focused. And, and so, um, you know, I, I, I could list a whole bunch of others. Those are the three that really come right to mind right away. Uh, Jason Allen um, was, was one of my, um, uh, and he's just a genius. And um, he was my extern director at um, what was is now called OMEG in Oklahoma. It's a referral center. And, um, you know, Lee Carr in, in Oklahoma, uh, George Foster in Oklahoma, Doug Penniston. So these are guys that um, really made an impact on me. I remember, I remember George Foster. We were one of the mistakes I hope I never make, but I see people making all the time is when they bring students in for legislative events, they can, it's, it's easy to be, to say, we know best. You guys just watch and learn. Mm-hmm. And um, George never did that. He, he basically put us front and center. He, uh, he understood the lay of the land politically. He could walk in the room and he would know, um, he would know who the 
aid, the legislative aid, was and who their parents were and what their parents. I mean, he just and he did it because he he just generally cared about those. Right. Uh, it wasn't a show. It wasn't for politics. And but at the same time, so he was the, he was the guy. He owned the room, but he always made it a point to make sure that our opinions were important. And so when I think about that, those are kind of lessons that I think, man, I hope that someday I'm doing that same thing. That mm -hmm. I don't I don't get so full of myself that I'm I'm basically making it about the Chris Wolf show as opposed to let's bring up these other people and really cultivate their talents. And I hope someday. I can do that uh, better. Yeah. How old are your kids? Uh, my oldest is 12. Well, okay. Excuse me, my oldest just turned 13. So, yeah, so she'll be in eighth grade, or she's in eighth grade right now. One of the things, I, I and I'm, I guess I'm sort of looking at this as, a, as we go through this process, I'll, it'll probably turn into pretty much being free consulting every time yeah. I sit down and talk yeah. with anybody, and I think you probably get that a little bit, no, too. That's great. But, you know, so when you were going through your thought processes of what you're going to do when you grow up, how did your dad... How'd your dad mentor you in a way to, because I'm going through this with my son. My son, Hank, is just took his first OAT test and did relatively well on his first go round, and he's hoping to do a little bit better. We're going to do visits this fall. What were the things that your dad said to you as you went through this process about going into optometry school? Well, you know, he was really, um, he didn't push me at all. In fact, I, I kind of uh, found it. So, so what I mean that he didn't push me, he wasn't aggressive about it. You know, he, he let me explore the idea. He let me come to that conclusion on my own, but he exposed me to, to, to all the stuff that we get to see. He right. didn't shelter me. He, he really taught me about how the profession was really a scrappy profession. We got to fight for everything. I, I still, no matter how, how um, good a job I do, we still battle the fact that I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. And if, um, if I send my patient to the wrong primary care doctor that they've already got a relationship with, right? And that primary care doctor says, well, you need to see an ophthalmologist. Then that patient's going to listen to that primary care doctor, even sure. though I did everything exactly right. That happens, right? And so, you know, yeah, we've made some headway and we've got a lot of good relationships, but I was exposed to that. I knew full on that that was going to be an issue for our profession. Mm -hmm. uh, no matter how good a job I take care of patients, no matter how much I know about the disease state that that patient's coming in with, if they get into the hands, if their primary care doctor was brainwashed by ophthalmology that they have to see an ophthalmologist right. for an eye disease, then there's not a lot I can do um, to, to stop that, right? I, I can do everything on the front end in terms of patient education, but I, I'm really blessed because I fully, I'm, I don't feel bad about that because I knew it going in because I was exposed to it when I was an undergrad. So, um, so yeah, the, that's kind of, I think he exposed that and it was sort of the scrappiness of the profession that we couldn't take anything for granted that really drew me to it. Okay. If there was... Anything you could do right now and you knew you wouldn't fail at it, mm. what would you do? I think I'm doing it. I mean, I, I <laughs> that's, do. I that's think, really great. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, the, the hard part is, is, you know, after we've gone through some of these discussions this weekend so far, is trying to focus on what, you know, what, what is, what's the bread and butter? Like what's making you, you know, what's making you money, where, where your time should be spent. And I'll tell you, like, these conversations don't directly make me any money, right? I mean, right. That, it just, it just even though you know iCode sponsors these things, etc. Um, you know, it's not it's not like somebody's paying Chris Wolf to sit down here and have these conversations. But uh, 
if I really think about, well, what, what is my time worth? Part of just exploring these ideas with other people and hopefully getting them, getting other people to be able to hear them and kind of work through them on their own, I like doing it. And so, um, so as long as I like doing it, um, I, I want to do it. So, so, but I, I love seeing patients. So I think if, I think if I stopped seeing patients as much as I do, um, then I wouldn't be as relevant. I wouldn't have the perspective of what's going on in the, you know, in the trenches, what it's like to have to, you know, talk to a patient about the macular degeneration and how do we have that flow into our practice. Um, but then I also, I love to be able to go and speak to doctors. It makes, makes me, so I have to look at the evidence and I have to do a lot of research and I have to think through, okay, this guy's going to ask me this question. If I don't have the, if I don't have the answer, I either have to tell him I don't have the answer, but I got to figure out that answer over time. And so all those little buckets kind of recharge my, you know, recharge me to do the next bucket. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm doing what I want to do and, um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, amazing to get an opportunity to sit down and just dig into somebody's brain a little bit and find out what they've got going on. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me today and talking about this. And uh, we'll continue to keep putting you on the spot, even yeah. though it's your show. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Ted. My I pleasure. Appreciate it. Certainly. Thank you. My pleasure.